Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Today is Friday, May 27, 2022. Coming up on Roland Martin on the Pilgrim, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Uh, we talked about a variety of issues with Congressman Ro Khanna of California. What must Democrats do to get aggressive, turn the vote out in November? We break it down. Also, what's happening with wokeness in media? Are they actually destroying democracy? Well, the author of a new book says so. And I'll talk with the two authors of a book dealing with black professionals. That's right, Randall Pinkett, Jeffrey Robinson, two of my Alpha brothers. Their new their book is out, Black Faces in High Places, 10 Strategic Actions for Black Professionals to Reach the Top and to Stay There. Folks, it is a jam-packed show on this Memorial Day weekend. It is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got it. 
Hey, folks, welcome to Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. He is one of the most progressive members of Congress, Representative Ro Khanna of California. He and I talked, and we talked about a variety of issues, but one of the things that is really important that you're going to get out of this is the sense of urgency Democrats need to turn voters out at the ballot box in November. Here is our conversation. Representative Conner, there's several things I want to talk to you about, but, but one of them just uh, jumps out this that we're now dealing with. We're seeing the first arrival of this baby formula uh, for overseas. And what's driving me crazy, you have Republicans who have been complaining about Democrats on this issue. And literally, a significant number of them voted against spending money to bring in baby formula. And now we know that the reason we have a crisis is not just because of Abbott, because Trump made it more difficult to import baby formula. How the hell are Democrats and Biden to blame for a problem Republicans don't want to fix? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, look, 192 Republicans voted against giving funding to help fix this baby formula shortage. I mean, look, one of the problems was that the FDA uh, didn't have enough inspectors. Uh, they didn't get to the uh, Abbott uh, facility in time. That was all Trump era policy. Uh, Democrats just funded to fix that problem. Uh, and the president is uh, 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 deploying the military to try to bring uh, this baby formula and the Republicans are not helping. So they wanna criticize the president, uh, but they aren't doing anything constructively in terms of the funding that'll help get baby formula into the hands of families that need it. So, uh, but, but, but to me also, I'm always about uh, messaging as well. and. Uh, I, I just don't necessarily believe that Democrats are doing a good enough job of walking the American people through this uh, and 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 then letting them know, like, here's your problem. I mean, look, people right now are going, hey, we got problems with food prices. We got problems with gas. We got problems with inflation. You know, and it's important to let folks know here are the folks who are actually trying to fix the problem. Here are those who actually help create the problem and then who don't want to fix it. You're right. And we could do a better job of that. Look, I mean, Trump was driven by protectionism and uh, he basically didn't want uh, it's one thing to put tariffs on China. I agree with some of that. But to put uh, tariffs on European products such as baby formulas are basically protectionism through the FDA is partly what's created the problem. And then you've got a Republican Congress that's unwilling to fund the the the, the efforts to get more baby formula uh, into the United States. So. Uh, they're very good at uh, casting blame, but as the president's pointed out, they don't have a constructive policy. Now, I do think the president has taken decisive action, and I'm glad he's taking that, and he's he's got to continue to take decisive action, even on the price of food, the price of gas. Uh, you know, I personally think the government ought to be buying when the, at the low dips of food and gas, and then selling it back to the American people at cheap prices to bring price stability. You know, we've got to. You know, people are complaining; those are real issues in my district. And we've got to take bold action uh, to try to lower prices. Um, let's, let's move on to another issue. Two days from now, it's going to be the second anniversary of uh, the death of George Floyd. Uh, and I can tell you uh, that people are still greatly bothered that um, you didn't have the George Floyd Justice Act that was passed by the United States Senate, was passed by the House. Uh, the president has not uh, moved on executive orders. Uh, Congressman, and I can tell you, this is going to be one of those issues that's going to play a crucial role in a lot of black folks, especially young people, turning out in November. Um, do, do your party leaders understand 
how the inaction on this issue is going to hurt them come November? I don't think they get the gravity, candidly, Roland. I mean, I think they're two colossal failures of uh, this Congress. The fact that we have not done anything uh, to pass the George Floyd uh, Act, a basic, basic police reform. I mean, this is not, it was a, a very moderate bill, actually. And the fact that we haven't done anything on voting rights. And these are sort of fundamental rights. Basically, your right to be able to vote in this country, your right to be able to walk on the streets and not get shot by a, a, a cop, even if you're unarmed. Uh, and we're not passing these things. And so I, uh, the, the Progressive Caucus in Congress has been screaming about this for the past year and a half. Uh, I do think if, if we can't get it through the Senate, that the president really needs to look at decisive executive action on both of these uh, before, uh, the, before Labor Day. And not only that, uh, we still are seeing uh, poll numbers, um, unbelievably low poll numbers. Uh, one poll showed the president is at 26 percent among young voters, uh, a similar number among Hispanic voters. Um, again, that none of that bodes well uh, for November. What must party uh, leaders and what must candidates be doing to convey to the American public, uh, whether it's inflation, whether it's in these other issues, that Democrats are better to respond to this than Republicans. We see how they're voting, voting against baby formula, um, not wanting to support the George Floyd Justice Act, uh, not giving damn about voting rights. But the reality is you have people who are saying, you know what, Democrats, you had the majority, you didn't fix it, I'm gonna go somewhere else. That, again, uh, is what people are facing come November. Well, what we got to tell people the stakes. I mean, I get people's frustration, uh, but giving Donald Trump uh, p- power is not going to do anything uh, for racial justice, economic justice, uh, or climate uh, action. But two, the, the Democrats have to understand that young voters are very idealistic voters. They want a better, more just society. So we've got to deliver something on voting rights, uh, on police uh, violence reform and, and through executive action. But there are two other places we've got to deliver. One is on the student loan debt relief. I mean, I was speaking yesterday uh, to a group of laborers in my district, largely Latino uh, construction workers, and they were uh, having a scholarship fund for their kids who are going to go to college. And I asked this group of working families, how many of you want to uh, forgive student loans? How many of you want to have free college? All the hands went up. This idea that somehow the working class doesn't want or care about student debt relief is just totally false. The reality is a lot of the working families, black and Latino, are the ones who have the most student loan debt because they've got kids, nephews, nieces who want to go to college. The president with a stroke of the pen can believe a lot of that debt. Uh, That would be something decisive. And then on climate, you know, we've got to get something passed. Uh, the young voters care about that. They understand that their generation is going to be affected by it. Um, I, I think that uh, I mean, you're absolutely right when it comes to uh, when you talk about that, that idealism. Uh, but also, uh, again, people voted in 2020 uh, based upon saying, elect us, we'll get, the th- get th- these things done. I always make the distinction to my audience that all of these bills have passed the House. The problem has been the Senate. But for the public, they just simply say, Congress, Biden, none of y'all got it done. Well, look, I, I, I understand. I mean, people are busy. Uh, they uh, sacrificed a tremendous amount in 2020 
uh, to get us elected. They're not going to follow the uh, every Senate vote. But I do think that in the next six months, the president uh, can be more vocal. He can come out and say, we got to abolish the filibuster. He can come out and start campaigning uh, in, against the Senate on a couple of these key priorities, especially on something as critical as as, as, as voting rights, especially as something as critical as climate, especially as something as critical as uh, uh, Roe versus Wade and codifying that. You know, I, I think people want to see some fight in, in, in our party for the fundamental rights. And they will understand if there's a lot of fight and the numbers aren't there uh, and we vote and, you know, we're short a, a senator. Uh, but I don't think they see sufficient urgency or fight yet uh, on these key issues. Well, I, I think that's the thing. And, and Reverend William Barber with the Poor People's Campaign, uh, and what he, what he says is uh, don't just vote one time. Keep voting. Keep voting. You have to show the people uh, that you are willing to keep bringing this up. He said you can't just say, well, uh, we brought it up once or twice and that's it. He's absolutely right. Look, I, I just to get a sense, I mean, I know Twitter isn't is a voter, but you get a sense of a lot of young folks. I tweeted out we need a $15 minimum wage, and it's about time to do it. And half the folks are uh, understandably criticizing me, saying, well, 15 bucks is not going to be nearly enough. I mean, we're so far kind of out of touch of where people are with their rents, with their food prices, with their gas prices. And, you know, we're still stuck at $7.25. I think the $15 wage was something that people really came out to vote for, especially uh, a lot of the uh, the service workers. Some of them are just still relying on tips. So you look at the $15 wage, you look at student loan relief, you look at voting rights, you look at uh, police reform, uh, you, you look at bold climate action. This is what motivated folks. I mean, look, I love, I'm very proud that we pass roads and bridges and infrastructure, but th that doesn't speak to people's souls. That doesn't speak to a more just America. Uh, you, you know, we've got to speak to some of these fundamental issues that got young people out, that got people motivated in 2020. Um, we, we, uh, when I talk about, um, uh, the poor people's campaign, uh, June 18th, they've been a mass gathering in, uh, the nation's capital. Uh, they have been calling for the president, uh, to sit down and meet with them, but not just meet with leaders to actually meet with what they call, um, uh, impact or disaffected workers. Um, you know, the white house has been wanting to meet with Reverend Barber or Reverend Liz Theo Harris. Uh, and he has said, no, we need to bring poor people with us. They've been unwilling to do that. When you look at the numbers, 90 plus million low income and poor people in the country. Um, look, uh, if, if Democrats are looking at uh, a path to victory, it is appealing to those voters. They are white. They are black. They are uh, Latino. Uh, they are young. They are uh, significantly women. Uh, they are Native American. And uh, the White House has been unwilling to do that. And I, I just don't understand the calculus. Why is it that in this country, people love to talk about the middle class, the middle class, but you have so many politicians who don't want to be seen with poor people? I don't get it. I, I, I mean, Reverend Barber, I think, uh, is, is the closest moral leader we have to someone like Dr. King in our, in our country. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, I think what he is doing in terms of mobilizing uh, low-wealth Americans of all backgrounds and putting that coalition together in the South and other places is remarkable. And 
people like me and Barbara Lee and others in Congress and met with him and, and, the, and people who he brings many, many times in Congress. I mean, uh, he's had folks testify uh, to us in, in informal hearings about what it actually means when they're uh, low wealth, low income and can't pay rent can't get food for their kids that, that's sufficient in terms of nutrition, can't get medicine. I, I, I think that the, the White House needs to hear them. And there, there's some very simple things we can do, two concrete things, raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks and include all service workers, and then have uh, some of these wage boards in states like New York to increase the pay for fast food workers and service workers like home care workers. I mean, it's ridiculous that you're making eight bucks, 10 bucks, uh, at a McDonald's, at a Burger King, home care work, whereas in Europe, people are making 20 bucks, 25 bucks for the same jobs. And I think that's what's important for people to realize. The low wages in this country are a deliberate policy choice, and it's fixable uh, with policy. And, and this is what the Democratic Party ought to stand for, higher wages for honorable work. Uh, we're not doing it because we don't have the right collective bargaining policies or cor correct wage boards. And, and look, and I, and I say uh, to President Biden, even hold a White House summit on the poor. I mean, look, the numbers don't lie when you when you, when, when you look at. It. And again, what people often say is that uh, is that, uh, you know, uh, the, the poor don't have lobbyists in Washington, D.C. They are also voters. They are people who are workers. They are also voters. And if, if you send that signal, and, and I get it because people are like, oh, well, you know, uh, that comes across as just giving them things. Well, hell, it's a whole bunch of rich folks who got stuff with Trump's tax cut. A whole bunch of rich folks who got stuff with Trump tax cuts and got stuff with the Fed policy. Look, we don't talk about the, the inflation and the asset bubbles in the stock market because of easy Fed money. We don't talk about all the money that went to, to corporate bonds. Now, some of that may have been necessary to get out of the pandemic, uh, but it helped the people who were at the top. It didn't help people who were working. Here's, I think, the biggest thing that we need to do, why I think a Poor People Summit is so important, because we've got to puncture this awful stereotype in this country, started, I think, with President Reagan, that somehow if you're poor, it means that you're not working or you don't have a job or you don't have an aspiration to get a job. That is oh, just oh, you, you, look, your colleague, Representative Matt Gates, uh, made the comment about people who are on WIC because of baby formula. I mean, it's as, as if uh, the, the, these little poor people, look, if you can't afford baby formula, what's wrong with you? What the hell? Well, it, they, I, I mean, they've got to meet, I mean, people have got to meet folks who, the, 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 the poor in this country are some of the most uh, honorable, honest uh, folks who are sacrificing and, and, and doing everything they can for their kids and their families. And they're working uh, jobs, one job, two jobs. And the reality is they're, they're, they're not getting paid what they deserve. They're not getting paid what they deserve because they don't, we don't have correct collective bargaining in this country because the corporate power has shifted a lot of the resources to the top. So, I mean, think about it. I mean, in a very simple example, you got Amazon, one of the richest com companies in the world. I don't begrudge Jeff Bezos' innovation so that packages can show up at your doorstep. But you don't think that the people who are at the warehouses, the people who are delivering those packages have something to do with the value? Of course they do. So here's the problem. Why is it that they're not getting proper wages? Why is it that they're not benefiting? Why is it the people who are serving us fast food with making our lives convenient aren't getting proper wages? Why is it the people who are taking care of our, the elderly or sick aren't getting proper wages? They're adding value 
and they're not getting paid what they deserve. And that's the fundamental issue. It's unfair. It's, it's unjust. It's not just that they're poor. It's that we made a decision to underpay a lot of work in this country. And then people wonder why you have such a dramatic uh, wage and income gap, wealth gap uh, in this country. Well, uh, that's a perfect example. Uh, Representative uh, Connor, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, we're going to keep uh, obviously pushing this issue. We'll be there on June 18th. Uh, Thank you. With uh, Corpus campaign. So we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for having me on. All right. Take care. All right, folks, got to go to a break. We come back. I'll talk with the author of a book who says that white liberals in media, they're actually undermining democracy. Well, she and I kind of differ on the notion of wokeness. Trust me, it's a discussion you don't want to miss. Folks, don't forget to support us here at the Black Star Network by downloading the Black Star Network app available on all platforms, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, Xbox, and Samsung uh, TV as well. And don't forget to support our Bring the Funk fan club where all dollars that you give goes to support us and the show and what we do. Of course, you can send your check-in money orders to P.O. Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037-0196. Cash app, dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R. Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zale is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. We'll be right back. to the launch of the Mass Poor People's Low Wage Assembly and Moral March on Washington, D.C., June 18, 2022. We're rising up to demonstrate the compelling power that we, poor and low-income people, have to reconstruct society from the bottom up. And we need to do it with the loudest voices possible, the biggest actions possible. Because we know that there is no scarcity in this land. The only scarcity is the moral will to do what's right. those with sub-minimum wage jobs who can't afford sky-high rent. People with disabilities are the fastest growing minority group. It's crazy to me that in 2021, it's still legal for workplaces to pay a sub-minimum wage to people with disabilities. There are still so much trial and tribulations that we go through as indigenous people. We can't get a decent wage to sustain ourselves, nor can we get adequate housing. Veterans across this nation say enough is enough. We can't pat essential workers on the back on one day and then cut their health care the next day. Health is a political choice. What more do I need to do to prove that my voice is just as valuable as anyone else's? There are still forces in denial that would try to slow walk our transition to a clean economy and a just future for us all. We have an immoral system run by moral people but together we walk, and we walk and we fight. It's time for a change! Reconstruyamos esta gran...
Nación. Nación. See, we are people of resilience as we fight these interlocking injustices together. When we work together, mobilize together, and rise together, we become a voice for the voiceless, and we become an agent of change in a time where great change is needed. We need the third reconstruction to ensure that deaf people, people with disabilities, and all people can have the right to live and to thrive. We know what they are doing, but the question is, what are we going to do? Reconstruction begins when we change our mentality and say it's time for you to get your foot off of my neck. I'm Dr. Greg Carr, and coming up on the next Black Tape, thinking about the Black freedom movement in a global way. Dr. John Monroe joins us to discuss his book, The Anti-Colonial Front, which maps the social justice movement in the United States and its impact internationally, from Asia to Africa, and how movements like anti-communism were used to slow down racial equality like critical race theory today. Critical race theory today, communism back then, this essentially mobilized to shut down any challenges to a given system of power. Connecting the civil rights movement to colonialism on the next Black Table, exclusively here on the Black Star Network. I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach and host of Get Wealthy. Let me ask you a question. Are your financial affairs in order? Or are you like Prince, Aretha Franklin, and Chadwick Boseman, celebrities that passed away with no will? Well, that's the topic we're covering on our next Get Wealthy program. Do you have the proper strategies in place to make sure that your assets and everything that you've worked so hard for pass on to the next generation and you create legacy wealth? So I encourage people to be thinking about what is the long-term plan as opposed to just for today or just right after I pass away? That's right here on Get Wealthy, only on Black Star Network. America's mainstream media is overwhelmingly white. My next guest says in her book that white progressives or white liberals, they're causing a serious problem in media. Hmm. Y'all going to enjoy this conversation with Bacha Ungar Sargon, the author of the book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. It got a little spicy between the both of us. All right, Bacha, let's talk about your book, uh, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. First off, Define your definition of woke. Great. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be talking to you and very excited for this conversation. Woke to me means it doesn't mean police reform. It doesn't mean ending mass incarceration. It doesn't mean ending the racism in our public schools. And it doesn't mean ending intergenerational poverty among 20 to 30 percent of Americans descended from slaves. That is all things every American should be focused on. Those are really important things. Those are national emergencies. Woke is 
what I found out about in a 2018 Yale study that found that white liberals talk to black and Hispanic Americans different than they talk to other whites and different than white conservatives talk to black and Hispanic Americans. White liberals dumb down their vocabulary when they talk to blacks and Hispanics. This was a Yale study from 2018 that found that. That is wokeness. It's a view that says that white people have a power and a privilege and an agency that puts them above people of color so that their instinct unconsciously when they meet a person of color is to dumb down their vocabulary. And I think that that is so, so corrosive and patronizing. The assumption of oppression based on skin color, it is really dehumanizing. That's what wokeness is but i but i think that's part of the problem uh because the reality is what you initially said is how how wokeness or being woke was defined uh african americans actually define that uh in terms of what woke is now what then happened was i think get a number of different things how other people non-black folks then began uh to define wokeness also uh how uh, those who don't agree with those issues begin to define it. I think about, uh, again, political correctness. I think about diversity. I think about how those phrases have been turned on their head. So I think part of this issue uh, is when we talk about woke, black folks have a very clear understanding of woke is, is when non-black folks then begin to try to define it for us as opposed to sticking with what the actual definition is. I could not agree with you more. I think that's a really crucial point. And I think that every single place where progressives lose their way is when they depart from where the black community is at. Every but is that issue- just progressives though? Is that just progressives? Because part of the uh-huh. debate issue that I've had here, even with this, is with is even with conservatives, with white conservatives, uh, or hell, even some black conservatives. Because again, the, the use of woke then begins to be used as a negative, yeah. uh, just like uh, diversity. Uh, then all of a sudden it then it then evolved into, oh, we need diversity of thought and then diversity region of country. That was all an attempt to actually water down uh, what the point of diversity is. And I think where we are now, how woke is being used, it is being used now as an attack against black folks and others, as opposed to folks saying, what is it really about? I use it exclusively to attack white liberals. <laughs> so, but, the, but your charge is accurate. The word woke started as black slang for all the things I listed as the important things, right? And now conservatives and people like me who are on the left, who are angry at where the progressives are at, use it as a pejorative. And that is a totally fair charge. That That is a problem. We appropriated a word from bl- the black community that was describing something important to describe something bad. But when I talk about it, I am almost only only speaking about white progressives and the ways in which they've departed from the black agenda and the way they use intersectionality, the way they use gay rights, the way they use immigration to over and over abandon the black community, abandon Americans descended from slaves in order to push their own economic agenda under the guise of social justice. That's my problem. Well, and and, and, and the problem that I have is that it is how whether they are progressive whites, whether they are conservative whites, how it is used. And then what ends up happening is uh, black folks are the ones who actually get screwed. In the outset of your book, you talk about uh, how media uh, did not, uh, in terms of uh, beginning of media, did not 
uh, really care about uh, working class uh, people. Um, and as I was reading it, what I was actually looking for was for you to actually be even more granular and say white media. Uh, because when you talked about Joseph Pulitzer, when you talked about the first newspaper uh, in the penny papers in New York, while I was reading it, I'm sitting here going, yeah, but that was a paper called Freedom's Journal, the first black newspaper uh, founded on March 16th, 1827. I think about uh, Frederick Douglass, the North Star. I think about Ida B. Wells, Barnett, a paper in Memphis. Black, black media was talking about working class issues. And so uh, I think part of the part of the thing, though, is being very specific we have to say white media. So I, I talk a little bit about Frederick Douglass's The North Star in the context of the fact that, you know, people don't know this, but um, um, Lloyd Garrison, who was a white abolitionist, actually canceled Frederick Douglass, a former enslaved person, because he felt that he was compromising, right? This that That is exactly what I'm describing. You're totally right. There was a rich tradition of black media. I talk a little bit about it in the book, but not enough. But what was so interesting to me was to see how this white progressive abolitionist felt that it was his job to cancel a slave. He canceled his newspaper. He told people not to buy it. He stopped paying for him to travel to speak about his experiences as an enslaved person because Frederick Douglass came to the opinion that the Constitution actually did enshrine the rights of all people, irrespective of race, and that it was only through the legal system and only through the Constitution that civil rights for all was ever going to be possible, which is, of course, Dr. what Dr. King picked up on. And for this guy, Lloyd Gary, no way, no way, only revolution, right? No way to work within the system. And so this white person appointed him the savior of the slaves and then canceled Frederick Douglass. Well, that is, but when we look at American history, though, I mean, the reality is, uh, you know, this year Liberia celebrates uh, the 200th anniversary uh, of uh, its creation. Uh, and then you have the American Colonization Society, which is comprised of uh, a diverse group. Uh, in yeah, those people who actually believed, who were abolitionists, who didn't believe in slavery. But then, of course, you had uh, those white plantation owners who were afraid that uh, freed people of African descent were somehow going to free their slaves. And so you had these two forces, multiple forces that were involved in the American Colonization Society. I think part of the thing that and one of the reasons why I was making that distinction um, uh, about again, white media uh, is because uh, the operative the operative word, whether you're talking about white progressives or white conservatives is white. And that is the issue in this country, even at, 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 in, at, at you know, the inside of your book, when you say something is wrong with American journalism, I will then I will actually change it to say something is wrong with mm. uh, American white journalism, mm. because th th these are the issues we're dealing with, because in 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 when we say mainstream media, we really mean white media. Yeah, the yeah. issue that you find is they look like Wall Street, look like yeah. Silicon Valley. Yeah. And so you do not have uh, uh, real voices at the table. You're now seeing it. Kim Godwin, president of ABC News, Rashida Jones, president of MSNBC. But when you got a majority of your newspapers in the country who won't even fill out the ASNE diversity survey, that tells you where we are in white media. Yeah, yes, 100%. I would argue, though, that the reason that American media is so is so white 
is because it is made up of people of immense economic privilege. And unfortunately, America's rich are still America's white. So to me, the class piece here is a much bigger problem because when you look at the people of color who are allowed to succeed in American media, they are all from Harvard or Princeton or Yale or University of Chicago. Their backgrounds, their economic and educational backgrounds look a lot like the other American elites, whereas you look at the black community and two thirds of black Americans say that they are either moderate or conservative. You're never going to hear those voices in the liberal mainstream media. But, but this is again, uh, I, I, I get your point. But the problem, I think, is it, it's too narrow. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is you're only really talking about New York, D.C., large cities. The reality is, uh, is, so look, I've been covering mega churches and people have this assumption that, uh, oh, my God, there's a problem with 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 with, with Christianity is these mega churches. Well, mega churches only comprise four percent of all churches in the country. Ninety six percent of the churches in America are not mega churches. When we talk about uh, elite. Look, the average journalism salary ain't several million dollars or even a hundred thousand uh, dollars. My first job coming out of college, the Austin American Statesman, which had about 230,000 circulation, uh, offered me $20,100. I said, no, you gotta pay me at least two grand more. Uh, when I got hired at the Fort Worth Star Telegram uh, a year later, it was at $32,000. Uh, and so the issue, I think, again, I think we gotta, we gotta define this. The issue is when you talk about large, large media companies that did then become sort of the gatekeepers. But the journalists out there who are doing some amazing work, who are covering some amazing issues, they're not part of the elite. They didn't go to the Harvard's University of Chicago. That's really your New York Times, your Wall Street Journal, your papers like that. And of course, Fox News, ABC, NBC, where you got people who are in the air talking about so-called working class voters, but they're making several million dollars and their kids going to private school. So it's a really important point. Let me just clarify a little bit. Um, so 75% of American journalism jobs today are on the coasts. The majority of journalists working today are actually working for either digital media companies, national media companies, or those elite legacy media companies. Local journalism is unfortunately dying. It's very sad to say. You're totally right. There are still local journalists who are working for $40,000 a year. But the vast majority of journalists are coming to a place like New York and taking a starting salary of $25,000 a year to work in a digital media company, which tells you everything you need to know about who their parents are, right? Because you could not have afforded to live in New York City on $25,000 a year when you but, were but, starting. No, but, uh, but this is where, I, this is again, this is where I got to push back because I know individuals who are not coming from rich backgrounds. And so uh, they're not. What you have is, uh, look, I, I'm dealing with people. Uh, look, I'm a three-time board member of the National Association of Black Journalists, mm -hmm. lifetime member in the Hall of Fame. And we're, I'm, I'm dealing with journalists who are, who, are, who, are, who are looking at jobs in Chicago, looking at jobs in New York, places like that. But they're not making a lot of money. Two and three or four of them are living, uh, living in apartments uh, with others. And so it's, it's not, I mean, I, I get your point, but... I know a whole lot of folk who look like me who don't come from rich backgrounds. They are not. I, I, I totally believe you. There are people who manage to do this. There are people who do this. But I'm just telling you from like a from a purely data point of view, they are the exception rather than the rule. And by the time they're in their 40s and 50s, they'll be making over one hundred thousand dollars a year, which puts them in the top 10 percent of Americans.
Yeah, but if you but if you're looking at someone who is so rising, the average is brought down because younger journalists do make less money. But if you stay in this in this industry, if you make it in this industry, you're going to be part of the elites by the time you're in your 40s. You're going to be well. Well, well, even, well, well, first of all, even on that particular point, there we talk about uh, the elites, which I think is a phrase, frankly, as being thrown around left and right. I mean, I, it, it trips me out when I see politicians uh, talk about the elite when, if you look at the salary of a member of Congress, that so-called puts them in the elite. Totally. Uh, so, so, so part, so part of this issue is that when we start breaking down, really, uh, uh, you know, money in America, what the average median family income is, what the average salary is, and so uh, the average American is not making a hundred thousand dollars. And so, uh, I, I think that again, how, how, how uh, you know, the word elite is being used um, uh, is is being used, I think, uh, in, in a different way. In, in terms of we look at salaries, we look, I mean, I hear people say college professors, they are the elite. Well, I know some people who are adjunct professors who are making 10, 12, 15,000 or making 40 or 40, 40 or $48,000. And so this, I think, still speaks to what goes from, from a media standpoint in terms of what are the interests that matter. And I think one of the things that happens in media, and I dealt with this at KRLD Radio in Dallas. I've dealt with this uh, in, in, in daily newspapers. Luckily, I've gone to the black media side. This whole focus on, hey, we're going to target our news to high wealth areas because we're looking at advertising. And that plays a role in the type of coverage that we're also seeing. Yeah, but I think we're agreeing. Like, I think we I think you and I both totally agree that the media does not reflect the views of like the average American, you know, the average black American, they just do not see their views or their interests or the things that they need reflected in the media. Don't you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. But see, yeah. again, though, but see, but the position that I take is I don't believe this is based upon wokeness. I think it's based upon whiteness. And when I say whiteness, uh -huh. I, 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 I'm, I'm talking about the reality of where this country is. The reality is that when you talk about, again, and how you laid out in this book here, uh, going back, all of those newspapers going back to 1906, 1907, going through the 30s and 40s, they supported Jim Crow. They locked black journalists out of the newsrooms. They were white only. Uh, and so and then you didn't you didn't see your first wave of black journalists in the media until the Colonel Commission report came out in 1968, declaring there were two Americas, one white, one black. And then, of course, and they said part of the problem with the riots is you didn't have black people who were in these newsrooms. And so your first wave of black journalists really came in in the late 60s, the early 70s. And so right now we're really only operating on the second generation of black uh, and brown journalists in newsrooms. And so, again, I don't for me, the issue is not how woke media is undermining democracy is how white media <laughs> Is and I'm just I mean and that's just to somebody who's worked in daily newsrooms and I have had to confront white journalists who simply uh, don't. I, I I'll just give you just a just a perfect example. I covered Khaled Muhammad came to speak in Fort Worth, mm -hmm. and he had gotten suspended by a Louis Farrakhan as national spokesman for the Nation of Islam, and so I went to cover the speech and I came back with my story. And I get called into my to the office by Debbie Price, who was the executive editor of the Fort Worth Star Telegram, who should have never been hired. In fact, she had never been an editor in her entire career, even going back to college. But she got the job over an African-American man who had been a city editor, state editor, assistant managing editor. But the publisher liked her. But that's another story. 
And so she asked me, what the hell is this? And I said, like, what do you mean? She's like, well, your story looks totally different than the story that's in Dallas Morning News. Uh, and I said, well, you need to call Dallas Morning News, figure out what the hell they were doing. Because, <laughs> because, because in that story, here's what happened. Mm-hmm. The white journalist, uh, who, I think it was Todd Gilliam who wrote it, he talked about, oh, how folks had to be searched before. Well, anybody's covered the Nation of Islam speech. Hell, I'm used to that. Hell, I, you, I go through, a, uh, 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 I get searched. I got searched yesterday at the White House. Okay. And so he, how he framed the story was uh, Khalid Muhammad said, pin the tail on the donkey, on the honky, not the donkey. Okay. Anybody been to the ancient Islamic speech, you know, typical things freight. But I focused on what Khalid said. Mm-hmm. So you had two different stories mm-hmm. written by black journalists, written by white journalists, mm-hmm. the exact same speech. So the white editor is questioning me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, go talk to the white guy. If you read what I wrote, I wrote what he talked about, not the uh, not the other things that will push someone's button. Mm-hmm. And that's a perfect example. That's why I'm saying I think the issue, it ain't wokeness. It's whiteness. It's how we see the world that now then is portrayed in how we cover the news. Well, to me, that story is like a perfect story of like like the the complete and utter success of like you because you were able to get your opinion out there and published in the paper. No, it wasn't opinion. No, it wasn't opinion. No, no, I mean, sorry, I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah, yeah. You're, it was a news you story. were able to get that crucial reporting out there to all of your readers. And the fact that your editor, after the fact, had a problem with it, like that only makes it even more delicious that you were able to do that through your good reporting and but the problem get that is this here. out there. Problem is here. I was the only black male reporter in the entire. It's very it's a huge problem that America's newsrooms remain overwhelmingly white. But the reason they are so white is not because the people hiring in them are racists. They would kill to have more black reporters as a person who works in a newsroom. I would kill to have more black people writing with me, working with me. That's not the problem. It's not because they don't want to hire black people. It's because the only people applying for these jobs come from privileged backgrounds, which are overwhelmingly white. No, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're wrong. I literally, I, I literally, listen, I was a, I was a, nat, I mean, you're, you're absolutely wrong. I was a national student representative on the board of the National Association of Black Journalists. Mm-hmm. And we sat in a room with the top headhunters. They were the ones who the TV stations would hire to go hire anchors and producers. And we sat there in Los Angeles. This is March of 1990. And they're going, we would love to hire more black producers and we just can't find them. And literally sitting on our board were five black producers. One of them Oscar nominated. And this is what she said. How many do you want? Which market sizes and level of experience? She said, I can call 100 right now. So what happens is what you're saying is that that it really is a it is a white media excuse because it goes to where they recruiting. We just saw this in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is talking about, oh, we can't find black engineers. But you know where they were? They were not going. They weren't going to Spelman. They weren't going to Xavier. They weren't going to FAMU. Wait, they weren't going on. to Prairie View. Hold on. So that's did the they, did they then not hire the people she suggested or they did no. hire them? no. Because it because it then becomes the next excuse. See, uh, this is I, again three times I've been a board member. I've sat in in meetings where we have met with CNN, we met with 
Penske Media. We've met with um, uh, Verizon when they owned uh, uh, when they owned uh, Oath. I mean, I have sat in meetings with local stations, local newspapers, sitting across from white media executives who mm-hmm. say, "Oh, we would love to hire," but then all of a sudden, what then happens is it then becomes where I, where whiteness comes in. Do I know this person? Where they come from? Uh, I'm not quite so sure. And then all of a sudden, then you have black journalists. Who are who are in on islands, and then when it comes to trying to get those stories, if they do get hired, they try to get their stories into uh, the, the uh, to the to the papers or onto the websites or on the air. Then it becomes, mm, you know, I'm not quite sure. CNN, see, when I was at CNN, they could not find somebody to go interview Winnie Mandela. Okay, great. They said, Roland, will you go? Sure. I go down to Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. I interview Winnie Mandela. They come back and say, uh, do the interview, about 20 minutes with her, they go, we got a problem. I'm like, what's the problem? Why didn't you ask her when she went on trial uh, uh, for the accusations of them putting tires around the necks of people? I said, why, I said, why the fuck y'all didn't interview her? I said, I asked Winnie Mandela what I want to ask Winnie Mandela. Mm-hmm. They literally said, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna run the interview. That's terrible. I went, so, no, 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 it's fine. I went to John Klein, the president of CNN and said, hey, they're not running the interview. Give me the tape. I'm going to run it on my TV One show because I had a weekly show on TV One, Black Cable Network. Again, Black-owned media. John mm-hmm. said, great. Winnie Mandela dies in March of 2018. Mm-hmm. I was in, it was in, in, in uh, Memphis covering the 50th anniversary, getting ready for the 50th anniversary of the assassination of MLK. I hear she dies. We restreamed the interview. The only reason you can see that interview is because I had a Black-owned media outlet. But these were white editors deciding, oh, we don't like the fact that you didn't ask her this question. Y'all don't even send me questions. So therefore, we're not going to run it. And this is what I'm talking about. This is the frustration for black and minority journalists. And so, again, I, I read your book and I went through it. And literally, every time where you put woke, I put white. And, and, and that is the, <laughs> and that, so, the, so, the, so the problem is that when we talk about what was happening is they are they are seeing America through their blue eyes or green eyes and not understanding that how you view America is different if you're black or Latino or Asian. And that's why American white media is the way it is now. So for me, it ain't wokeness. It really is the problem of whiteness and how they define what to be an American is. Um. I, I mean, I think I, lo- I think there's a lot less um, daylight between our positions than uh, you're making it sound, <laughs> because I would say I'm sure that there are problems with, let's say, conservative white media as well in capturing certain aspects of the black experience or the l- Hispanic experience. But the problems don't stem from the woke worldview. They stem from something else. So to me, wokeness is like white liberal specifically. But I totally it, agree with you that there are probably the, problems. They come on the, from the on same the right pool. They come from the same pool. I mean, again, that's what I'm saying. I look because I've I've been there. I've I've sat across from what I who I believe are so-called white liberal journalists. But okay, okay. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Okay, when you're sitting opposite white liberals versus white conservatives, that study that I started with, right? That sort of patronizing thing that white liberals do when they're talking to black people and Hispanic people. Yep. Like, doesn't that feel different than when you're talking to white conservatives? Don't isn't nope. it a different thing? No. Nope. 
Because this, because because the, the sociologists found that white conservatives don't do that. I'm not saying they don't have problems. They do have their own problems. But that that patronizing thing where they look down on you from this position of like, you know, I have so much privilege. Yep. I have to protect you. Conservatives don't do that. Mm, they do. But again, it's a different it's it's it, 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 it's how it comes out. Here, here's the deal. If, if, if someone ignores me and then someone is patronizing me, frankly, I'm feeling the same damn way. And and again. I'm somebody I, I've actually been in that position. Right. Uh, and, and so I, I respect that experience. But I would say that you, you fix the, those two problems may emotionally impact you differently. The same. But you fix them differently. You can't use the same thing to fix them. They need. Yes, different. I, I, actually, I can. Actually, actually, I can. The, in order in, to deal with the issue that you're talking about. OK, what you're laying out in terms of class and coverage I'm telling you right now, the difference is mm -hmm. you cannot have a you cannot have American media, American white media, where literally 80 plus percent of those who are in charge are white men. I totally agree with you. And I so totally and, and, and so that then now drives the narrative. It drives the coverage. It drives the decision making. Totally and agree. so then yeah. when you talk about the, what, what then what then comes out of that is, oh, now, how do we now cover this? So now if I'm a white male conservative, I may I may look at this differently from that so-called white ally. The problem for me as a black man, the outcome is the same. And that's my problem. So how I, you arrive I, at it, I don't I really totally care. I totally agree with the you. Outcome. I totally agree with you. I, I, I nowhere would I ever dispute that it's not a problem that America's newsrooms are so white. It is a total and utter failure. I completely, completely agree with you. I just think that the the reason for that is not racism anymore in 2022. I mean, see, it, it may have been in the 90s, but it's not anymore. It's but, something but, but, else. But, but, but see, but see, right? Okay, so let's 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 unpack that. And the reason okay. I, I think it's important important to unpack that because you say it's not racism because this is the problem that we have. When we had this conversation. We go racist, not racist, and then that becomes the debate. The problem is not racist, not racist, because. There ain't that many people you've actually met and I've met who will say, damn it, I'm racist. They're not going to say it. The problem is not that. The problem is all of this in between. And that is actually the conversation we should be having because it's what you said in terms of what's patronizing, um, what's paternalistic, what's paternalistic. Uh, it's also um, it's also. Uh, whether you're looking down on someone or ignoring someone, it's the perceptions. Uh, it's, it's all of those different things. I remember it's interesting. Um, if, if you look at um, uh, Ken Delanian is a national security reporter for NBC News. Mm -hmm. Ken and I worked together at the Fort Worth Star Telegram. I was a city hall reporter, two city hall reporters. He was one of two county government reporters. And it was quite interesting how the white ex editors would Oh, how Ken was aggressive and he was assertive uh, and he was, I mean, all these different things. Now, that was a period where Ken was making a lot of mistakes. We had to run corrections in the paper. But the language they used towards me was totally different. It was arrogant, cocky, wearing your ambition on your sleeve. Now, we literally sat right across from each other. And it was very interesting just watching 
how the same editors looked at two reporters of the same age who were both covering political beats and how their language towards both of us was totally different. So the point I'm making is not racist, not racist. It's the stuff that's in between that then begins to drive what you talk about in the book that also drive decision making, hiring, promotions and advancement. I mean, I I, I hear what you're saying. I, I to me, the stuff in between um, is not as important as the actual racism that still exists. That's no, very real. No, child, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is this is this is where I'm sorry. Well, you're wrong because here's here's why I think you're wrong on this. Because again, here's what America sees as racism. America sees somebody calling you the N word. America sees someone with a burning across in your front yard. Uh, th that's how, we, oh, that's racism. They don't see it as racism by going, mm, what, what school they came from? Texas Southern University? That, that's an that's a HBCU? Yeah, I, you know what? I, I'm going to take this Texas A&M person. They're never going to say that's racist. That is actually literally racist. No, 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 no. But yes, it is. Say, no, no, no. But, follow me. I know, I know what you're saying. But they're not going to say it's racist. No, See, that's that, to me the same as saying the N-word. It's saying I don't want to work with someone who's black. But, that's no, 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 literally no, 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 racism. No, no. Right, right. But, but, but here's the deal. <laughs> they, might even, they might even prefer this black person who's from Texas A&M and not Texas Southern. See, again, I, but that's I, classism. I mean, that's that's well, <laughs> no, because because here's the deal. There are acceptable blacks. Look, I, look, so that O'Brien told the story when so that really liked me on her show. And that was a black executive who told her Roland's the Roland's not the right kind of black. That's classism. That's not racism. Because it's not about race. It's about behavior. It's about something you can control. No, no, no. It's, it's about, you know what? These are the kind of blacks we like. But that's not, that's can't be about race because they're, that's about behavior. That's about class. That's about a, an attitude. That's about, you know. No, no, no. But, it, it, but see, you uh, said it's about class. But here's the deal we might come from the same social economic background. The difference is that's a, that's a more palatable, you know what? Oh, He's not as militant. He's not as he's okay. He, he see what, what, what begins to happen, what begins to, but the, the problem where it still is race is because who is the person in the position deciding those things? The struggle that I have. And again, as I was going through your book and again, as I was looking at the examples you used, when you were talking about again, coverage uh, in the issues, even when we talk about just this notion of working class, when you I mean when that phrase is used, I'll be honest with you, they ain't talking black people. You're talking I about am. white working class. I'm not. Well, I'm a, well, guess what? You are absolutely the exception because what I can tell you is what consistently happens in American white mainstream media when there are conversations about the working class, pretty much black people are being excluded because that phrase alone is being used not to discuss black working class. 
I mean, the, the examples are, are all over the place. I, I had to have a meeting with Senator Bernie Sanders on this when he kept talking, when he kept speaking against, uh, he kept talking about, um, uh, he was, uh, uh, he kept talking about identity politics. And I was like, Senator, do you know what the hell you're actually saying? What are you labeling identity politics? Well, well, we all Americans. No, no, we're not. Because we're also being treated differently. Because the, the, the phrase identity politics is used the same way wokeness is used against us. Oh, Roland, you're speaking identity politics. No, I'm not. I'm speaking reality. And so this is the struggle that I believe. You know, I believe that, again, there are some great, there are some excellent points that you're making in here. I just think that it's being real that in this country, how certain phrases are used, how certain stories are skewed. It is it is oftentimes it is about how am I appealing to white voters, but I'm used, but we don't even use the phrase president meets with some black preachers. What's going to be the headline? Oh, I see what you're saying. It's going to be president meets with black preachers. But if you meet white meets with white preachers, it'll what's be, be the headline. Preachers. Yeah. President meets with preachers. Um, I I let me let me just I I Pre hold up, hold up, hold up. Yeah. president meets with a group of black CEOs. But if he met with the CEOs of Walmart, of Apple, and let's say these other CEOs, they all white, what's going to be the headline? Right. No, that's, that's, yeah, of course. No, 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 no. This is my next question for you. Why the two different headlines? Why? But, uh, but to me, like, to me, the obsession with the in-between erases the total abandonment of the black working class specifically like that i that's my whole thing is that black americans descended from slaves have been abandoned by both sides on the yes. altar of other stuff other things like immigration and gay rights and like all these and other white, stuff. Up, not, but you but you got to add and white women Sh sure because yeah. again because you got to remember the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the only reason women were included, inserted in that, because the Virginia, the races out of Virginia thought by adding women that was going to kill the bill. And it actually didn't. When affirmative action came along, the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action in America have been white women. I totally agree with all of that. But I think where we would disagree is that I think a lot of things that white liberals promote ostensibly on behalf of black people actually hurt black people. That that's the thing like that what? I'm trying to say, like, like defund the police. But 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 you say, but who did that start with? What do you mean? Who did that start with? No. Where, where did the, that phrase, that idea, that concept, who did that start with? Somebody who really does not care about poor black people. That's, That's not sure. true. No, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. Because you know why? we're now in a murder spike. No, 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 no but you're wrong. More the black you're wrong. babies in Philadelphia died of gunshot wounds in 2021 okay. than died of COVID. Like but the reason, but, but the reason you're wrong is because if if that is your perception of that, that means that you have not actually talked to black people who 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 were talking about that very issue. I've had conversations with black people black activists about defund the police. Defund the police does not mean get rid of the police. Defund the police actually says what you just talked about. How do we shift resources? How do how is it that in most major cities, half of a city's budget goes to its police department? 
The question is not, okay, well, we shouldn't be dealing with that. What people are actually saying is, how do you reimagine that? How do we deal with a situation where we're sending cops to situations, and I've done this story way too many times, I have talked to too many of these mothers and fathers, where that person dies when they actually had a mental problem as opposed to sending mental or health professionals. Why do we do that? Why are we using police officers doing parking enforcement as opposed to using people who are police officers? So, so, the, the, so again, just what you just described there is a perfect example of what has happened in, in white mainstream media. And that is not actually sitting with the people who are talking about that and saying, what do you actually mean by that? What does this look like? What does it mean? Now, is it a phrase that the other side can take, slap on a bumper sticker and use it as, as a negative? Absolutely. But if I talk to the people who are actually saying it, those are not white people. I've heard it from black people. Well, I talk to working class black people and black cops all the time. And what I'm hearing from the cops is that they go into these neighborhoods and ever since the defund the police movement and the new view of the cops as every single one of them being like homicidal and out for black blood, they now see kids running around with guns, waving them. They're not scared of the cops anymore and they're not ashamed of the cops anymore. And we are in a, these cities have become war zones. Children can't get to school without being shot at. They can't play in playgrounds without being shot at. And I'm, I'm just telling you from what I am hearing on the ground, this is very connected to the to the defund movement. No, they it's not. No, no, I'm okay. telling you. No, but I'm saying like, this I spent six years in Chicago. Six years. Do you know what one of the fundamental problems in Chicago is? Tell me. One of the fundamental problems in Chicago ain't defund the police. It's not. They don't have enough cops. It's literally because the police department in Chicago has been so oppressive against black people. Black people don't trust the cops. So the deal is if you show me a city where you actually have relationships between communities and police. I'm going to show you a difference. Please, please go read the Kansas City newspaper, the Kansas City Star. They did an exhaustive investigation about the rampant racism in their police department. And do you know who was mostly quoted in it? Black cops. And so in, and I just came back from Kansas City and did a town hall with the, with the Kansas City Urban League on this very issue. Black cops talk about it. Go to Philadelphia. Go to New York. I'm not going to deny that we need ask, we ask, need. Okay. No, no, I'm not going to deny ask, that we need police reform. We absolutely need police but reform. The, but, but we have but, but a huge it, problem with the cops. That's I'm not going right. to deny that. But, I agree with you about def, that. But what defund the police did was it slapped people in the face. And yes, what then happened is, people, oh my God, no, we're taking money from the cops. No, you're not. And so was it difficult to explain? And it was. And so it was used as a negative. But the problem I'm saying is, it's not that black folks are saying we don't want police. They don't want to get beat up by cops. They don't want to get shot by cops. They don't want to get shaken down by cops. And so it's a it's a whole different nuance there. My parents were civic club founders. OK, Our, so they dealt with cops and commanders and the police chief all the time. I can tell you since I was eight, nine and ten, I was sitting there having seen the conversations. So black people are not saying we don't want police. What they're saying is we don't want to get shot. Totally. We don't want to get I, I totally agree with that. There's an amazing book called Ghetto Side by Jill Leovi. And she writes about how um, there's the, there's a sort of 
double-edged sword where on the one hand, um, you know, black communities are over-policed on misdemeanors, which reduces in, reduces trust with the cops. What then happens is that when there is like a a violent crime, a murder, a robbery, a carjacking, they don't want to, they don't want to help the cops. They don't want to participate, cooperate with the cops, give testimony because they don't trust them. And so they can't catch killers. They can't actually solve these crimes. Guess who also does that? Which is why the murder clearance rate when the murder yes. victim is black is so much lower. It's yes. 50% lower than when they're white. I and totally agree with all of that. Who, who? Guess who does that? Because white conservatives and the ATF. Say, follow me here. Follow me here. When I'm talking about how we view things, we have not had a Senate confirmed ATF director in seven years. Because now these are so-called believers in law enforcement. But why is it they don't want to confirm an ATF? Who are the Senator Cory Booker went off of them yesterday on this very issue? What I'm what so what I'm saying is when we even even the conversation you and I are having right now, because of our backgrounds and how we look and how we grew up, we see this whole issue totally different. I can talk to people and I can actually say, oh, I see why people think defund the police is negative. But then when I actually talk to people who are dealing with it, dealing with the realities of policing and I hear how they are explaining, I'm like, hmm, it actually makes sense in terms of how do we shift resources? What I'm still going to argue is that I believe that. And again, yes, you and I agree on a number of things that you lay out. But what we have to be honest with is that even we talk about class, whiteness and blackness cuts across class. You can have somebody who went to a state school versus somebody who went to Harvard who is white. And somebody might you might say, well, that Harvard person is an ally. Uh, Not necessarily, because I'm telling you right now, some of the some of the most crap that I've taken from white journalists have been, yes, white liberals. But wait, let, me, let me ask you something. What is the defund the police's movement's response to the surging crime? Like, what, what is their response to the, these babies being shot down? Easy, easy. Well, here's what you've had. You've had, first of all, you had an explosion, an explosion in the last 12 years of guns being sold in the country. You had you've had literally the gun lobby and those simply stating point blank. Obama's going to get your guns exploded. Biden's going to get your guns. You had that driving force. That's one. Two, what you've had is you've literally had police pissed off. They're being held accountable. I saw in Chicago, in Baltimore, they were so angry at the DAs there dared to hold them accountable. You had deliberate slowdowns in Chicago. I, I mean, I covered this. They were they had an inordinate number of broken body cameras broken dashboard cameras why but why? What, what 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 would be the difference between defund and a slowdown defund would have fewer cops no less. you're that's what why so again, don't so tell me again, why you're you're defining when defund, you when you reallocate resources you have fewer cops no first of all when you start breaking down okay have okay have you ever covered you ever covered city hall no okay Have you ever covered county government? No. Okay. So that means you've never, have you ever actually had to sit there and go through what the police budget is? I've read through a police budget. Yes. Okay. All right. So when you actually go through a police budget, Uh when you look at how the allocation is made, there's there's a significant number of things that police do that have nothing to do with fighting crime. 
Nothing. Nothing new. You mentioned it earlier. All those tickets. We know. We know based upon the numbers that every that it was an average of four tickets or warrants per household in Ferguson. We saw the survey. All of those areas around St. Louis in St. Louis yes, County. Yes. Okay. Yes. Where that became an yes. economic driving. Yes. Thing. Okay. So yeah. So you had that. So you start going. So why all of a sudden have you seen police uh, police chiefs say? Stop pulling people over over some bullshit license plate. Stop pulling people over when it comes to uh, a, 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 a tail light. Uh -huh. I've, I've heard chiefs say focus on crime prevention. So part of the problem is that we have given so much money to police departments and a lot of the money is going to non major criminal activity. So when you start shifting. So in Seattle, when they said, wait a minute. Why are we putting the money in the police department for parking enforcement? Get put that money in a separate department to go hand out tickets. How about we examine how they are using the resources? Mm -hmm. So what that's what defund the police is actually saying. What they're saying is San Francisco talked about it. Hey, if you get a call and on the call, they're stating it's a mental issue. Don't send the cops dispatch a mental health professional. Okay, to me, that is called police reform, what you just described. But guess what? You choose to call it police reform, somebody else calls it defund the police because they're choosing to be provocative. Here's the deal. We can call it whatever we want about you as long as we get to the same place. Amen, brother. But, Amen. But that's, but so again, so that's why I'm not hung up on the phrase because you know why? What I'm doing, just like I did that Khalid Muhammad speech, I'm listening to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. I'm not going, oh my God, defund the police. What are they saying? No, I'm listening to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the problem. We have too many white journalists who aren't listening. They're bringing preconceived notions or they're bringing a perspective of the police or someone else versus let me listen to what this person is saying. That to me, I think is a problem. So I, I just don't see it as wokeness. I think this idea of it labeling everything wokeness, which look, you go on Fox News a lot. That that is by design. It is by design, just like this whole thing with critical race theory, which we all know is bullshit. I would be very happy to go on CNN, but they won't have me. Well, no, Fox, well guess what? Fox, <laughs> Fox News don't, Fox News won't call me. Fox News, and guess what? I've had people who. Fox News will book people who I put on my show and will not call me. And I have a whole email roster of all of their shows and their producers. My agent has actually emailed uh, Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News, directly and their head of talent. They will never call. You know why? Because the perspective that I'm offering, we're talking about right now, Fox News does not want on their air. They don't. And no, so this is they, they no, have pe they have people from Black Lives Matter on all the time. No, 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 no. no. See, see. OK, but it's OK. Do you know why they have them on there? You know why they have them on there? They let them you know have why? their say. No, no, they don't. Yes, they do. Fox, no, they don't. When the Fox News was created, Roger Ailes created an institution where he says, first of all, our anchors always win Two. We're going to place people on to purposely put them in an antagonist uh, position. That's why they don't. I'm trying. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm I giving watch you a lot of I watch a lot of Fox. And, you know, you have like, first of all, they have a lot of black hosts, but also they, they no, let people have their uh, say. 
Okay. And then they All disagree right. with them yeah, if they I'm, don't I'm agree. I, okay, I'm 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 telling you how that system is set up, and I'm telling you exactly. You could talk to. I've had the conversations with former black talent and actually black producers at the network. Trust me, Fox News will net. They, no, he, they, this is what they say about me. He's different. He's different. So what we're dealing with right now, I'm telling you, is the, which is the struggle in this country when it when it comes. Okay, but to can music. I just say something? Like I don't, I don't sit here and say like, um, you know, CNN won't put me on because I'm Jewish. Like I, they don't want my point of view, but that's not like it's not. It's just, they just don't want it. But that's totally fair. Like I don't hold that against that's them. Fine, they don't want my point of view. They don't want but, it. And I'll go back and I'll see it again. Yeah. I'll go back. Fox News likes certain types of black people. Right. I'm telling you. I mean, and and and, I, and, and, I, and you know what? You know who I'm quoting? You know who I'm quoting? People who worked at Fox News who have told me, who have told me, right? But and that's what we're dealing with. So the so the, so the so this issue in media, this issue that we have in media. Again, I'm sorry. I don't believe it's wokeness. I believe what it is is it is there are people who are in positions of power, who see the world in a different way. They want to frame the world in their way, in through their lens, through their perspective. They're unwilling to actually bring people to the table who might bring a different perspective. And even when, and, and I'll tell you, one of the issues that we face, even when you talk about some black people at the table, it's a black person who they're comfortable with, who also sees the world similar to them. So they're not gonna really try to upset the apple cart. It's a struggle in media, I'm telling you. And well, I've, I've, I am, I've seen I, this in so many ways. So. I'm so grateful to you for letting me come on and debate this with you. It was really, really generous of you to read the book and share your opinions with me about it. I'm very grateful and very honored. Uh, well, you know what? I, I'll say this here. Um, there, there are a few people I think you ought, you ought to talk to. You ought to talk to uh, Tim Wise or Jane Elliott. Uh, but I'm, but, but I, and I tell you, so I mean, so I appreciate, again, writing it. Uh, but what I really hope, I really hope, again, looking at, again, how, how the difference in terms of how a lot of white journalists are viewing these stories compared to a lot of black journalists. And trust me, there's a mega struggle. Look, our NABJ convention is in, uh, in Las Vegas uh, in August. Trust me. You drop on by, I think you're going to hear some hell of a stories for your next book. <laughs> I'll come. I'll come. All right. The book is Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining uh, Democracy. Uh, Batra Ungar Sargon, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Folks, I certainly hope you enjoyed that conversation. Coming up next, I sit down with two authors, alpha brothers of mine. And we talk about the role and the importance of black professionals in corporate America and how they can move forward and advance themselves, but also Black America. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network.
welcome you to the launch of the Mass Poor People's Low Wage Assembly and Mara March on Washington, D.C., June 18, 2022. We are a new, unsettling force, and we are powerful. to demonstrate the compelling power that we, poor and low-income people, have to reconstruct society from the bottom up. And we need to do it with the loudest voices possible, the biggest actions possible. Because we know that there is no scarcity in this land. The only scarcity is the moral will to do what's right. those with sub-minimum wage jobs who can't afford sky-high rent. People with disabilities are the fastest growing minority group. It's crazy to me that in 2021, it's still legal for workplaces to pay a sub-minimum wage to people with disabilities. There are still so much trial and tribulations that we go through as indigenous people. We can't get a decent wage to sustain ourselves, nor can we get adequate housing. Veterans across this nation say enough is enough. We can't pat essential workers on the back on one day and then cut their health care the next day. Health is a political choice. What more do I need to do to prove that my voice is just as valuable as anyone else's? There are still forces in denial that would try to slow walk our transition to a clean economy and a just future for us all. We have an immoral system run by immoral people. But together we walk, and we walk and we fight. It's time for a change. Reconstruyamos esta gran nación. See, we are people of resilience as we fight these interlocking injustices together. When we work together, mobilize together, and rise together, we become a voice for the voiceless, and we become an agent of change in a time where great change is needed. We need the third reconstruction to ensure that deaf people, people with disabilities, and all people can have the right to live and to thrive. We know what they are doing, but the question is, what are we going to do? Reconstruction begins when we change our mentality and say it's time for you to get your foot off of my neck. Next on A Balanced Life, we're talking everything from prayer to exercise to positive affirmations and everything that's needed to keep you strong and along your way. That's on a next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie on Black Star Network. Come out till you die. And you eat him, you eat him. Oh my God.
All right, folks, welcome back to Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Black professionals uh, are in corporate America in a variety of ways, but it's not always an easy thing for them to be there. Well, my next two guests have a book uh, that details how they can actually succeed in corporate America. Here's my conversation with Randall Pinkett and Jeffrey Robinson, the authors of the book, Black Faces in High Places, 10 Strategic Actions, for black professionals to reach the top and stay there. Watch this conversation. All right, gentlemen, uh, let's, let's get right into it. First of all, um, when you say black faces in, in high places, um, there's a reality. I, mean, I think about um, uh, Ellis Coles' book, The Rage of a Privileged Class, um, which was that first generation of African-Americans in corporate leadership where pretty much the highest they could go was to be VP of community affairs. Uh, and so um, how does one go from being just a black face uh, to being a decision maker, uh, someone who is actually driving the bottom line of a company? Well, first I wanna acknowledge that one of the inspirations for this book and the predecessor book, Black Faces in White Places, was Ellis Coase's book, The, the Rage of a Privileged Class. Uh, we, we, in some ways, wanted to revisit the very same themes that Coase explored, but in the 21st century, in a 2020, 2022 context, uh, arguably a post-George Floyd, uh, context for high, black faces in high places. And I, and I think to your question, Roland, nowadays it's less about how do you determine the barriers, kind of what the glass ceiling metaphor represented was. The glass says you can see to the top but can't get there, and the ceiling says you have a limit. We have people who have broken through the glass ceiling. So now it's more about how do we understand what we know to be those challenges and how do we equip this generation with the tools to apply the lessons that we've learned for those who've been successful without ignoring, and this is important, without ignoring that there are still barriers that exist and that it is not just incumbent upon African-Americans to figure out how do I navigate, it's also incumbent upon these corporations and organizations and government agencies to eliminate those very barriers that make it more difficult for us than it does for others. But, but, but with that, um, you know, what we are still dealing with is the reality is in that some glass ceilings uh, have been broken. Um, but I, but I, I think like I was talking to a friend of mine who talked about uh, you have the executive leadership council and you have all these black folks in corporate America, but their own internal studies showed that many of them, by the time they reach 55, they're being moved out of these positions and they're not actually going uh, to uh, the next level. And so, uh, you know, the question is, are, are we really challenging uh, these corporations uh, to be better uh, or uh, or are we still just sort of happy when one or two are in these positions, Jeffrey? Yeah, the, this this is this is critical. Uh, we are not happy when we see that there's only one or two. At least that's our premise in the book. It's like, how do we get more? How do we get more to the top? 
How do we get more uh, through through those those barriers? Um, and more importantly, how do we get more that are uh, community conscious, community engaged at the at that level? Because think about all the resources that would be available to our communities uh, if we had more black faces in in high places. I mean, that, that's the challenge. We, you know, a lot of people want to use that that phrase that we use at the title of the book in the negative, um, where we you know we have people who are at the top, but they're not being uh, conscious or not being engaged in our in our own communities. Uh, and what we want to flip that on the head and say that uh, what we're promoting in the book, what we highlight in the book, what we show people is that you can get to the top and and be uh, in, engaged in the community, provide uh, the, the the guidance uh, and the support that we all want. So uh, you know, there, there's one last thing: the the ELC and others have documented the the, the challenges you've said, um, and so some of the the work that we do in the book is to elaborate on what happens in the middle of the organization. Uh, there's, there's some plateaus people hit. How do you break through, through those plateaus? How do you leverage who you are, your identity, uh, for uh, you know, helping the company, but also for helping yourselves? Then, and then there's also the pivots that we see people make from corporations into their own businesses, which is also vitally needed. So th both of those are, are ways to uh, achieve those heights that we're talking about in the book. See, one of the things that... Um... That, um, that 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 bothers me is what you, you know. Random when you talked about that, this post George Floyd, uh, we saw all of these commitments, some um, anywhere from ranging from twenty to thirty to fifty billion dollars, and all of these folks, you know, again companies making these announcements about what they were going to do uh, when it comes to social justice. And, and I can tell you, as somebody who's been very active uh, in challenging corporations uh, when it comes to black-owned media. Uh, I, I can tell you some of our biggest obstacles haven't been white folks in companies. Mm. It's been black folks. <laughs> we, we've literally been on calls and, oh, where, where the black person goes, well, you know, I don't know, you know, rolling sort of controversial. And my sales guys will go, will go yeah, but, but you guys spend money on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. So what are you actually saying? And, and we're sitting there going, really? We're like to the black person, shut the hell up. Like, <laughs> like what are you doing? And so, you know, I, I've even been saying that, you know, this is not just black owned media. It's if black boards of directors. What are you actually doing? Are mm -hmm. you challenging companies to say, are you using black transportation companies, black catering companies, black event planners uh, and going down the line? And my whole point is we didn't fight for black folks to get in these positions, to be on boards and to, to be in a C-suite for them not to say something while they're there. That's right. That's right. No, you're 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 singing from the same hymnal that that we're singing from, Roland. Uh, I don't think it's being too grandiose to say that George Floyd's murder was a Rosa Parks moment for our generation. And right now, we're sitting in the moment, begging the question: Is this a movement? And what is or is not our responsibility and our opportunity in this moment? And you know, public enemy said it best. Uh, every brother ain't a brother. Uh, the, the old adage: uh, all skin folk ain't kin folk. Uh, there is a, a not just a reckoning happening racially in our society. There is a reckoning happening within our community that is differentiating between those who are willing to help people who look like them, and those who are operatives, plants. Uh, you know uh, that they. They are representation, but they're not representing. 
And our book is, is, is here to do many things, but among them, two things, Roland. First is to say, if you are at the table, you have a responsibility to be an advocate for the issues that affect our community because somebody sacrificed for you to be there in the first place. And second is, when you have these levers of, of power at your disposal as a black face in a high place to bring on black companies, to advocate for black media, to support future black leaders, at the end of the day, if you're not pulling the levers on behalf of our community, somebody else is pulling the levers on behalf of theirs. And so be unapologetic and intentional and strategic about how you do that because everyone else is following the same playbook. Me, see the, the reason why um, you know I've been really hitting this thing this thing hard because at the end of the day it comes down to the money. I mean, America. I, I, I say this: America really ain't got a problem with us talking about police reform. They, they ain't got a problem with us talking about oh criminal justice reform. They really don't have a problem with us talking about voter suppression. But when you get to the money. It's a whole different conversation. Coretta Scott King often said that they killed my Martin when he started talking about the money. And the, the thing that I have been challenging folks on is that if we are not having a money conversation, if you are sitting in an ad agency and you know the inside game, you know how they are purposely trying to create uh, the the specs that, that that push us out. You've got to be able to say, how can I change that? Uh, if you're sitting there in a company, it just can't be about your stock options and what you're making and sending your child when, if you're in a position where you can actually create uh, the, the level of uh, generation of wealth that's needed. And, and to me, that requires a level of consciousness walking in to say, Look, uh, I need to I need to leave some footprints and some fingerprints when I'm no longer here. But but again, to me, that's a mindset. That's consciousness. Yes, yeah, you're you're right on. And in fact, one of the things that we try to get people to do in the book is is to start inside, then come out. So you know, in the the way that we we write, we've written our, our last uh, two books now is uh you know we we, we intro the book um trying to put some context around why we're writing this book but then we go into 10 strategic actions in this case the the, the first the first three actions are all inside what kind of inside work understanding and being uh, uh thinking about self-determination and our relationship to one another um as a as a means towards understanding what our responsibilities are um when we leverage our might so we give you great strategic actions to, to do things, but it's in a context of a consciousness, absolutely, uh, that uh, connects us to our, 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 our brothers and sisters, not only here in the United States, but even around the world. So it's, it's a global diaspora. So that, to me, puts a, a point on, on what you were just saying, is that by the time you get to those, those higher levels and make some of those things, you, if you haven't done that self-discovery, if you haven't made those connections, then yeah, you, we get what we've, what we've been getting. The change is that there's some young people who are coming along who are asking us the question, if I wanna be one of those folks who's at the high parts of the organization, do I have to sell out? And we're here to say, you don't. In fact, you need not only be strategic 
and authentic, you need to be unapologetic because it's a new day. And there's right. some things that we've got to bring to the table, right? That community engagement, you know, those resources and thinking about how what you're doing connects, whether that's in corporate America or in your own organizations or in the social sector. I mean, that's that's the the, the golden thread throughout this entire book. I um I, I always had this. First of all, I, I, I've long said uh, that everybody ain't built for white places. I mean, I think, and that's important to say. Uh, I, I've always said that uh, I know uh, I, I could never thrive in a corporate environment. Here's why: because one, my grandmother had a catering business, my mom had a cake business. Uh, multiple aunts and uncles have had, had their own businesses and I've always operated from an entrepreneurial mindset and an entrepreneurial mindset is different from a corporate mindset. Now I think a lot of people have to understand who am I as an individual, what type of person I am, how do I see this? And so I think that there are frustrations. If y'all could talk about that. Have y'all encountered that where you've encountered people who have been frustrated operating in corporate America and never realized that they really were never destined to be in corporate America. They really were builders and creators and they were really operating out of, uh, frankly, uh, their skill set. They were operating out of their calling. Uh, absolutely. Uh when we wrote the first book, Black Faces in White Places, which you graciously wrote the forward for that book, Roland, thank you for that. Uh, we launched an institute called the Redefine the Game Institute, which taught mid-career Black professionals how to apply the 10 strategies in that first book. And what we've seen from that program is, as Dr. Robinson said, people doing that self-reflection and introspection to realize what you've just illuminated, which is that when you do the deeper work to ask the hard questions, what's my path? What's my mission? What's my purpose? How am I rooted in my identity? I, they realize that where I am is not where I belong. And we talk in Black Faces in High Places about two mindsets, which you reference. First, the entrepreneur's mindset, which is strategic action eight. But we also talk about strategic action seven, the intrapreneur's mindset that brings the same thinking of an entrepreneur, but realizes I'm operating in an established organization that has certain rules and norms and cultural standards. You have to do that inner work, not only because it's essential to sustaining yourself along what is a very arduous journey, but because two things we found from the research. One, when you do the inner work, you find a better alignment between your calling and your path. And believe it or not, when you find that alignment, you also are more likely to be further propelled in your career compared to those who take one for the team, sacrifice for the organization, compromise something of themselves. All the research shows when you find that alignment, we uh, in Strategic Action 3, we call it Ikigai. It's a Japanese concept that uh, talks about uh, your meaning and your purpose. When you find your meaning and your purpose, it will propel you to do your best, be your best, and find the best path forward for you. I remember when I was uh, when I was at CNN, uh, I, we I had announced um, that I was doing this uh, line of um, uh, ascots, uh, bow ties, and ties for the black-owned company. And I remember uh, we were I was we were waiting on something, and I was um, on the 
um, outside of one of the studios. And uh, David Borman, who was then, uh, I think was an executive vice president or senior vice president, he's Washington bureau chief. He turns to me and he goes, now, you know, Roland, if you were full time at CNN, you wouldn't be able to do all of these things because it was that I had speeches. I had I published my own books and I turned to him and I leaned in. I said, and mind you, Dave is like six, five, you know, 300 pounds, big guy. And I leaned in and I said, and that's why I'll never be full time. <laughs> and and they were sort of it was sort of like like you know like damn i can't believe he's saying this uh and there was another time when they they wanted me they they, they didn't want to give me a show but they wanted to create my own segment on the situation room and i was like okay that's great i said you know what we can incorporate my travel around the country when i'm giving speeches because typically a lot of times when i'm there governors and mayors and county judges and ceos are there and they were like no 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 this has to be in the studio i said oh i'm sorry so y'all want me to give up my speaking income to do a segment that's in studio but you ain't replacing my speaking income i said ain't gonna be a segment <laughs> and they were at, they were shocked they, they were like Whoa, whoa. I mean, he he's women. We're CNN. He 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 he's tell us no. And that there was a meeting of the uh, direct reports to the uh, worldwide CEO Jim Walton. And Jim and I always got along great. And somebody was was offended when they heard this. And Jim said, No, 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 no. He said, Roland did not decline to do the segment. What he said was, mm -hmm. we have to replace the money. That's right. Now, there are a lot of us who were in these corporate environments who would have sacrificed that's right that's right the external money for the segment and i've always said hell no never do that because that shows value and again that's one of those decisions that when you are in a yeah and I, look i was one of the most visible uh uh, 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 uh on-air contributors not just black but across the board the research indicated that I was one of the most recognizable faces on CNN in the top 10, and I was the only one in the top 10 without a show. But what I also understood was I'm not going to walk away from another revenue stream to make y'all happy. You're going to have to replace the money. And so part of this, this thinking is also knowing your value and knowing when not to give up something on the promise mm -hmm. that you might get something uh, down the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a powerful statement you said, and, and it's it's one of those things that um, people don't get. Black people, black professionals coming into the organization don't get to hear what you just said uh, unless they have a strong mentor. You know, unless they have a, a group of friends who have this you know consciousness and thought process, thinking about you know self determination, thinking about how they. Uh, defining themselves as opposed to letting a whole bunch of other folks define who you are or uh, what your, your value is. So, you know, we try, we're trying to, to fill some of that gap with this book um, because I, everybody doesn't have uh, a, an Uncle Roland Martin to, to tell them that. Hopefully they're watching the show. But that's the, <laughs> that's the piece that is missing uh, when, when we're interacting with some of these mid-level professionals. And, and, and on top of it, we, people are suffering physically for it. Their health is, 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 uh, is failing um, and, and they're having challenges and feeling all this stress because 
they're they're trying to be things that they're not that aren't true to themselves um and, and you know some of the so social psychologists talk about uh putting on these masks every day right you know, the, more companies are, are moving this way and saying we want more authentic people but when they say that i hope they are right. also realizing that they are going to get some to do this inclusion they're going to get some things they weren't expecting perhaps now they, 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 they don't really want that i mean they don't they, they don't that's 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 bullshit. they don't really want i mean i i i i, I think back when i worked at the fort worth star telegram i was city hall reporter and um the publisher rich connor had um so the managing editor left and the person who should have flat i mean it wasn't even a conversation uh my man Ken should have gotten. I mean, he was the city editor, he was a state editor, he was a system managing editor. Um, everybody loved Ken. I mean, he had all the credentials. The publisher picks a columnist who had never been an editor on any level in her career, including college. Hmm. I mean, if you put the resumes side by side. Debbie Price could not even touch Ken Bunting. I mean, not, matter of fact, you would take her resume off the table. <laughs> so, so the publisher, the publisher uh, picks her, and so he comes out to the newsroom and he makes this announcement, and I'm pissed. I ain't hiding it. My body language is like this is some bullshit. <laughs> now mind you i'm only i'm i'm two years out of college so so in the meeting in the meeting i look at ken and ken sort of has this look like rolling it's gonna be okay and i'm like damn that <laughs> so, then, so then there's this moment for q a i start hitting the publisher with questions and they were like damn bro so when the meeting so when the meeting is over you know, all of these people are walking up to her, congratulating her. I walk right past her ass and I go sit down. And they were like, Roland, what are you doing? I said, my conscience can't front. I said, I can't congratulate somebody who did not actually deserve the job. And then they were like, well, you know, why are you so hard on the publisher? I said, let me explain something to y'all. When you hire a pit bull, a pit bull is a pit bull outside the building and in the building. A pit bull don't stop being a pit bull mm -hmm. just because we on the inside of the house. And I have to always remind folks of that. And I'm like, so yeah, don't talk about bring your authentic self when they really don't actually want your authentic self. <laughs> they want you to temper your authentic self. So they don't want you challenging diversity in the company the way you would outside. They don't want you pushing them to do better when it comes to contracting because it's gonna get to a point, damn, you know, uh, why are they always pushing it? Well, you know who you hired, right? Well, I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would add and argue though, Roland, that I, I do believe in the post George Floyd era, there is, there is this new, context that we're operating in that has given I'm, I'm i'm not saying that they want our full authentic self that's not what i'm about to say i am saying that the that the the ball is further down the field for the tolerance 
and the uh, the significance of certain organizations, not all, but certain organizations right. that are trying to do a better job of meeting people where they are, recognizing that in the great resignation, if you're not amenable to the growing diversity of our society, you're losing top talent to somebody else. And so I think we are more emboldened, not fully emboldened, but we are more emboldened in the post George Floyd era than ever before. And I believe there are some organizations that are more legitimately committed, even if they are misguided and misdirected in how they are executing on that agenda that we're in a new environment now. And I, and I say that to say this, to our earlier conversation, we can't shy away from that window of opportunity because that window is right now. Right, means, right. If, we're not, if we're not emboldened and, and strategic and unapologetic now, then when else can we be? The window, the moment is now. Right, and I, and I think the reason, I mean, look, um, the, the, the second anniversary of George Floyd's death uh, was Wednesday. And and you have these commitments and you have all of these people who are who are talking about uh, these things that are happening. Uh, I've sort of framed this moment. As the third reconstruction, uh, John mm -hmm. Hope Bryant, we've talked yes. about that. Uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber has as as well. And, and, and part of the thing, I think, for a lot of people, especially a lot of black people, they ain't got no clue what the hell the reconstruction period is uh, after the election of Trump in 2016, I was in uh, at a panel, uh, DC, uh, and, and mostly white. It's probably about five black people in the whole room. And I brought up the reconstruction. Not, I think probably one white person in the whole room knew the hell I was talking about. And, and then we had the second reconstruction. That was uh, that 13 year period from uh, Emmett Till's, uh, well actually, I, I would actually push it back a 14 year period, Brown versus Board of Education one and two, going all the way through uh, the assassination of Dr. King and the Fair Housing Act and then affirmative action. And so what I've been saying is that we need to be looking at this period as a 20, a minimum, a 20 year period, a reconstruction period, which now means post George Floyd, we're only two years into the 20, mm -hmm. which means that we as African-American professionals cannot, uh, to your point, Randall, allow this moment That's to right. sort of dissipate. That's right. Because That's we've right. got to keep that foot on the pedal, got to keep that foot on the neck, saying, no, 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 we ain't letting up. Y'all, because I go back mm -hmm. to the first reconstruction. Mm -hmm. It lasted 10, 12 years. W.B. DeBar put it at 20. But five to six years in, white folks like, you know, well, look, look, we done passed enough laws. Look, 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 we fine. Okay, can we move on to something else? Mm -hmm. And then it began to wane. And then, of course, uh, by the Great Compromise of 1877, uh, we saw what happened. That's what we cannot do. This actually is the moment That's right. that, that we have to actually get people to understand if you cannot maximize this moment, yes, you black and corporate America, That's right. you will not have another moment That's right. That's in exactly your career. That's exactly right. This is it. Dr. Robinson. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you, you said it. And, and, you know, I know I've been saying this is in the book and that's in the book, but we, we, we get to a, a similar point and, and break down, you know, six different ways in which uh, you can, you can leverage the moment, you know, talking about how you're connecting, you know, your, your corporations and organizations 
and, uh, and, and social sector organizations to our community, to the community in the diaspora, uh, through the supplier diversity type of programs. You know, again, we, we, we tick off all these different ways. And, and if, if we don't, those who are in the room when those decisions are being made, if we don't bring those things up, who else is going to do it? Yeah. Who else is going to do it? Yeah. That's so, right. you know, this, this is the time uh, we, 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 we put together something that we think gives people a, a guide. Or, uh, and we, we're very, you know, you, you got a couple of, of engineers here with you today. And so we, we start thinking very analytically about uh, steps and processes and uh, levels. To, to get people to, to think about it in a very strategic way. But um, however people get to it, uh, what we're trying to encourage is, is, a, is a consciousness for as you get to those places at the higher parts of the organization, no matter what that is and how you, 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 you should act and think about uh, some of those um, the different aspects we've been saying here today. Yeah, it, it is, it is a, um, it is, a, and, you know, and, and, and look, I, I, I get, and, and I hear all the time people like, yeah, roll, you know, man, we, you know, we, we can't all be like you. I'm like, I'm not asking you to be like me, but what I'm, what, I, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, <laughs> right. And, but what, what I'm actually uh, asking you to do is to understand um, that you cannot view your position in a company yeah. solely through the prism of you. It, 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 you you cannot be that selfish where it's only about you and your check and your money yes you have a responsibility to do your job and to do it well yes you have a responsibility uh to increase shareholder value uh i, I had this conversation this week uh about um you know macy's and all the positive press uh of them putting these dresses out and clothing in sorority colors. And I said, the sister who works there, who's gotten credit for that, she's a Zeta. I said, she's a buyer on the dress side. She's doing her job. I said, but it doesn't mean that we also, while praising that, driving $10 million or more in revenue to Macy's, aren't also challenging them on what's your Black-owned media spend. How are you, what other Black vendors are you That's using? That's right. Uh, you buy, you're buying racks and coat hangers. Are there are any black-owned companies doing that? Again, you're putting on in-store displays. Are using, are you using black uh, event planning companies, black catering companies? What, 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 what I am arguing is that we have, we've got to have black folks who are within these spaces. Whether we're talking about, and the same goes to corporate America. Excuse me, uh, federal government or state government or county government or city government. Because you also have contracting. I mean, on the federal level, five hundred and sixty billion being spent every year on contracts. Black people getting one point six seven percent. So you got to be in a federal agency, or you got to be a CBC member, or you got to be in the White House saying, "Hey, hey, hold up! How are we spending five hundred and sixty billion dollars a year in federal contracts, and black-owned companies are getting one point six seven percent? Why black-owned media getting one percent of the billion dollar in in, uh, in contracts? What that means is I'm still doing my job." I'm still getting paid. I'm still taking care of my family, but I'm also recognizing that there is a collective here because if I am not then influencing and leveraging the company's spend and I'm not yep. seeing an increase for black owned businesses, truth be told, I'm not actually helping black America. That's right. Yeah. You know, my, my biggest criticism 
after George Floyd's murder of the commitments that you referenced earlier that many corporations and organizations made. And I actually did a, an op-ed on CNN in a, an entire video, uh, Seven Myths of Racial Equity, where I, I said, if, if your commitment is only to addressing social issues and not economic issues, it is insufficient and unacceptable. It, in, in other words, we, we, we run to the, 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 the program, the, the philanthropy, the giving. Oh. Uh, and there's nothing nothing wrong with that. Let me let me be clear. I mean, I, we 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 support that. But if all you're doing is philanthropy and giving and social right. programs, you've completely missed where the real action is, which is yep. the economics. The go. lifeblood of corporations, the lifeblood of our country, of our society, is dollars and cents. If it don't make That's dollars, it. it don't make sense. And so I looked at all the commitments through the, the lens, or to use your word, the prism of. Is this going to have an economic impact? There you go. And, and, and is it going to create jobs? Is it going to create wealth? And is it going to create intergenerational wealth? Yes. And in the book, we talk, uh, uh, you know, ad nauseum about this idea of intergenerational wealth as perhaps the signature measure of whether an, an initiative, an investment, uh, a commitment is legitimately going to transform our community or if it has a fleeting effect i i, I want to stay right there because uh i mean I, I spent i have a segment uh jeffrey called where's our money um and uh and i use the hashtags um black economic social justice right mm -hmm. and i say use the hashtag where's our money but then i use the hashtag i'm not satisfied and I'm not satisfied comes from the movie Malcolm X. So that scene when Brother Johnson had been beaten by the cops and then Malcolm X played by Denzel demands that they call the ambulance so he can get treatment. So the ambulance arrives and they take Brother Johnson to the hospital. And then a white cop uh, comes up to Denzel and says, all right, you got what you want. You can leave now. He goes, no, I'm not satisfied. And then he says, on to the hospital. Right. What what I keep what I keep saying, not just to black people, but I have said this directly to black civil rights organizations. Mm -hmm. You cannot go into situations and negotiate MOUs that are about you receiving a check. Mm -hmm. Because the check that you're receiving is white philanthropy. And the problem with that is we cannot subsist. We cannot survive on white, white philanthropy. Right. Because if I start breaking down numbers, if you are a company and you got a market cap of $250 billion and then you are saying, oh, uh, we're going to provide uh, $2 million mm -hmm. uh, to an institution over five years. Well, that's 400000 a year. But over here, you spending $3 billion on advertising. Right. In, in fact, I, I broke this down. And so uh, the Urban League announced this initiative with Pepsi, where they were going to stand up Black-owned restaurants. Uh, their foundation, five years, $10 million uh, in grants. As you say, around, totally supported. Right. Then they have this initiative where they wanted to drive $100 million uh, in receipts to Black-owned restaurants 
over five years. Now, part of the problem is that they got no way of actually measuring that as to what is like are you using a promo code or something. So how do we know that your commercials and spots are actually responsible for those receipts that came from every one, one of the black people who own the own advisory committee? But then I began to break it down. I said, so, y'all, we ran the numbers. I said, Pepsi spends three billion dollars a year on advertising. I said, if black owned media, I said, if we got five percent, just five percent of the three billion uh, spend, I said, that completely dwarfs that ten million dollar. That's right. In the middle of five years to the Urban League, and then even the hundred million dollars over five years for the black owned restaurants. I said, so now, what does that now look like? when we're getting contracts mm -hmm. see philanthropy that that's it right here contracts mm -hmm. are here mm -hmm. now yeah. all of a sudden if we're now getting annually 750 million dollars 500 million in contracts we can buy our own damn tables <laughs> well, i mean you, i mean that you're that, right and, and that's and that's how i'm trying to get a lot of these brothers and sisters who in these companies to think like don't get hype because the company made a five million dollar commitment mm -hmm. when they could literally use black owned companies and drive 500 million annually annually into these companies which impacts hiring so now all of a sudden we're loaning the black unemployment rate because we're likely yes. to hire those who are our own That's then true. like in my case i'm using black vendors black lighting black set designer Black. So all of a sudden, my capital, my my in, my revenue increases. I'm not using other black vendors, so I'm now circulating that dollar. That's how getting. But see, a lot of people go, "Damn, I never thought about it like that," because they're caught up in the hype of the philanthropy. Yeah, yeah. Those five and ten million dollar uh, uh, commitments that I've seen, you know, the, the drops in the bucket. You know, let's let's get 10, 15, 20 percent of that spend on these different categories or more going towards uh, you know, black and brown businesses. It is, you know, it is it is one of the challenges. No, no, no. I, I, I ain't got no, no. I want to go to the black businesses. Understood. I, understood. Here's the whole deal. If, here my, if you want to fight for brown, knock yourself out. <laughs> I, 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 I've literally been in meetings. I was like, yo, roll here for black people. <laughs> I understand. I understand where you're coming from. You know, you know where I'm coming from too. I got you. I got you. Roll my, him a black people. My point is that that it's 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 all about uh, you know philanthropy versus versus the you know, where the real dollars are. Uh, let's let's get into some of the the contracting. You know, both uh, Dr. Pinkett and I work with National Minority Supplier Development Council, um, various programs, and you know that you know the commitments that are made within organizations along like along those lines are all in the contracting side for your fine sponsor the program or the training initiative or, or things along those lines that's great um that does capacity building but once 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 we all have our businesses ready and on to that next level now let's open up the floodgates on those contracts because that's where that's where we make a difference. That's where the generational wealth can be developed. There you that's go. That's where the jobs can be created. That's where we, you know we start to be able to, to take uh, better control of things that are happening in our community. That's right. And and if you want to see, this is the other thing. And if you one of those black folks who are in one of these corporate positions, guess what? You now are also creating other places for you to get hired. 
Yeah. See, that's see, that's the other deal. When mm-hmm. when when all of a sudden you we are leveraging your position in these places. If you decide to retire at 55 or 58, and guess what? You're not be, you're not the CEO or the CEO of the company, but guess what? You may transition to this black owned company that's, that's right. doing 100 million, 200, 300 million in revenue, and you now can grow that company. So now there's a place for you to land right now. This is pre COVID. I said it. You got 2.6 million black owned businesses in America, 2.5 million got one employee. That's right. So it's really only 95% of all black owned businesses doing less 5 million revenue or less. So the part of the problem is, and, and, and y'all talk about David Stewart, Kathy Hughes, Bob Johnson was at BET. The reality is those are unicorns mm-hmm. for black people. Because the fact of the matter is we have few black businesses with capacity. And so these black faces in these white places have an opportunity to, yeah, drive those contracts in dollars and revenue. And now all of a sudden you're building black black capacity, which could be very well the places that you could transition to to run. Yeah, you know, I I want to I want to echo and, and and elaborate on on this this important point. I, I remember one of my mentors, uh, Bob Blackwell, who at the time was running, I think, the fiftieth largest black owned business in the country, uh, mm-hmm. Black Blackwell Consulting Services out, out of Chicago. But Bob said to me, he said, I don't understand why some of these black corporate executives don't hire me because I'm the first person they call when they get let go. And let me tell you something. Um, I'm going to say this with pride, you know, because of Bob's mentorship and because of his uh, investment, you know, what, what people perhaps don't know is that Dr. Robinson and I have been business partners for, for 30 years. We have two other partners, Lawrence and Dallas. Uh, we started when we were in college. And we've been together now for 30 years in business. And we now run, last time Black Enterprise ran their top 100, we sat at number 92 on the list. <laughs> number 90, and we're moving up. Let me tell you right now, we're moving up. They got to put that next one out. We'll probably be around 70 or 60 or so. But my, but my point is this, is we started early because the seeds of entrepreneurship were planted in us at a very young age. And so the other piece of, of, of you know, the mindset of the corporate executive who's missing the opportunity to invest in black businesses needs to be juxtaposed against the message to our young people that you can and should consider entrepreneurship as your path. Interestingly, the number one predictor of whether you will own a business is not your race, your income, your education, your geography, or your nationality. It's if your parents owned a business. There you go. And so not only is is wealth, can it be intergenerational? The mindset of an entrepreneur is intergenerational. The more entrepreneurs we create, the more entrepreneurs we will create because that's the greatest predictor of being an entrepreneur and a business owner. And that's how we create more wealth. Yeah. And, and it's just, this is, this is, this is, it's amazing. You know, we, we keep going back to uh, both of you have used this. I've used this. And it is the word that too many people really just ignore. It is mindset. Mm-hmm. It is mindset. And again, I am not, I am not saying, I will never say that the people who the black folks who are on the air 
uh, at ABC, Robin Roberts, uh, Michael Strahan. If you talk about Joanne Reed, Tiffany Cross, uh, Rashida Jones is a president of MSNBC. Uh, I've, I've as a as a three time board member of NABJ, life member now in the Hall of Fame. I've been pushing for us to be in those spaces, mm-hmm. while at the same time saying we got to have a strong, robust black owned media. Right. Two things can be happening at the same, at time. The same time because right. because here's the reality. You talk about uh, those folks, uh, you know, calling Bob. But look, here's the deal. It it I've some of those same folk have told me. Damn, bro, you get to say some stuff I can't. The thing is, I don't have to go ask somebody else for permission. Can I go cover this story? Because I own the company. (laughs) That's right. I don't ask anybody. And so, so, so the thing is, I think that there has to be uh, this this mindset of yes, if I am in a corporate, if I am in a corporate position, and I know for a fact that we are hiring people externally. Look at what the brother Ed Coke tried to do when it came to the law firms, trying to force them to diversify. And he was like, no, nah, no, we're going to tie it to the money. And see, this is where, again, leadership comes in. If you do not tie changes to your practices, to their money, to their pocketbook, to their bonuses, Al Newhart did it with USA Today and Gannett, when he said, we're going to be the leading company in America when it comes to diversity. And he said, and if, a, if some of y'all got a problem with me tying your bonuses to diversity, you can lead the company. Mm. Mm. Yes, that's that's, leadership. that's how that's how Gannett came. And then and if he had middle managers who were blocking it, they got replaced. Mm. And Gannett. And here's what happened when Gannett did that. All of a sudden, Knight Ritter, Cox. And the other media companies like, well, damn, we're we going to have to do the same thing because we're about to lose our black and brown talent. That's right. And that's exactly what happened. So one decision can literally affect the entire industry if you're the heavyweight. I spoke at Walmart, MLK program two or three years ago. I said the CEO was sitting right there. I said, y'all can literally change corporate America. You ain't got to ask permission because you that big. Right. right. I said, so what happened? I said, but you got to make the call. You got to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And that's how we're using that power. Mm-hmm. Um, got to ask you this here. In terms of, I ask this question in, in any book interview that I do. What was your wow moment when, when you were talking to people, you were researching? Uh, Jeffrey, I'll start with you. What, what was that moment? It could have been more than one, it happens, that even you went, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got one. You know, it's crazy in a good way, but uh, it was it, it just reinforced something that I already knew about the power of mentoring. Uh, some people know the story of Kathy Hughes. You know, we've had it in movies, we've seen it in written and on and on TV. And Kathy Hughes, you know, amazing entrepreneur. But one of the things I didn't realize was that one of her mentors was John Johnson of Ebony Magazine. Yep, and and how that relationship developed over time, um, I had not seen that written about. I had not seen that you know, talked about. But the fact is, you know, she was in radio. He was obviously Ebony and Jet Magazine, and she said she learned so much from him. And then when he was interested in going into radio, he came back and talked to her. And so the, it, it talked about how how in our community, you know, 
we need to make sure that this mentoring is going on because the power of having a John Johnson talk to you and give you advice while you're developing your own empire is uh, you know, is, is amazing. And she said, frankly, she learned some things about how what not to do. She she said she talked to us about how um, she wanted to make sure that that she as she passed on the business to the next generation that it would have a long lasting legacy that it would move and change with the times. And again, you know, we, we sort of know the story of Ebony and Jet, even though it's being reborn, that some of it has to do with uh, not changing your, with the times. The business has to keep up with the technology. Mm-hmm. So that to me was was a fantastic example of some of the themes that we talk about in the book, you know, how, the, the, how to maximize mentor. Now, 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 see, it's funny you said that because uh, uh, in Ed Lewis's book, uh, he talks about how John H. Johnson wanted to destroy Essence, and he began to he began to buy up uh, the shares of uh, some of the initial founders of Essence. He and he says, and so he said they had to put a poison pill in play to stop John H. Johnson, and it was hilarious because when Essence got sold, Ed Lewis said the the person the, the the person slash company that benefited the most financially from the sale of essence wasn't him as a co-founder it was john a johnson and ebony so <laughs> How about that? so so I, I so i think yeah john a johnson was mentoring kathy because she wasn't in magazines well that may be true <laughs> <laughs> well I, I can continue the theme because uh my my wow moment piggybacks off this 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 black owned media uh, theme. We uh, we interviewed Kathy and we also interviewed uh, Bob Johnson, uh, uh, founder of BET. And I, I think we're the first book to tell the story that at one point, and you're probably aware of this role, that at one point BET and Radio One attempted a merger. Yeah. You're the, you're the second book. Brett Pulley, uh-huh. Brett Pulley's book, uh, the, uh, the uh, Billion Dollar Bet, Authorized Biography of BET, uh, talked about it, but go ahead. I, I, there you go. So it, it, it was not a story that I was familiar with, uh, yep. and we're proud to tell it. Uh, and 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 to tell the story, I mean, I mean, they had all the legal paperwork drawn up. Uh, they were ready to consummate this deal that would have been, at its time, an unprecedented coming together of two black-owned media companies that would have had. Uh, advertisers standing at their doorstep because they would have had television and radio covered yep. uh, for the for the black community and 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 in in their words not ours uh this deal fell apart because of egos Boom. Uh, and, and 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 there's a and there's a lesson that we 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 uh unpack in the telling of that story uh around this kind of uh this difficulty, and I, again, I've been a business owner for 30 years, that we can sometimes experience where we start debating how much are you going to get of the deal and how much are you going to get of the deal. Right. That's right. And, and and my message, our message in the book is, look, folks, 100% of nothing is nothing. Boom. So I would rather have 50% of a of an enterprise than 100% of, 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 of a tugboat. You know, so we say... Cast aside the pettiness and the posturing and the politics and the personalities, and see the bigger picture. That w- and you know, and at, at BCT, our company, 
2019, we did our first acquisition. This year, we'll do two more acquisitions because we got the memo that the way for us to scale our Black-owned business right. is, is not just by building it with our bare hands or it's borrowing. M&A. It's M&A. It's M&A. It's, it's buying. It's merging. It's acquiring. And that means you got to put the egos aside. But that is, but that is that again. When we, when you look at, um, when you look at the folks who are operating in corporate America, uh, and, and I've said this, and I've yelled it from the from the mountaintops, that one of the greatest problems we have is we have black companies that are operating in silos. Mm. Silos, silos are killing us. Silos, and I say it. How are we not merging? If that's what's happening in mainstream, what the hell are we doing? Mm-hmm. That's right. It's exactly right. Yeah. And just just talk further about again your 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 the biggest advice to somebody who right now is forty-ish in corporate America. Yeah, the, I'll, I'll tell you the first thing they need to do is to is to check out this this, this concept in our book that talks about um, we took Randall mentioned it earlier, Ikigai. Uh, well, it, it brings into alignment, you know, where are your skills, it's a, it's a self-assessment, where are your skills, what are you passionate about, uh, what can you get paid for, you know, what, what does the world need? Um, it, because the, the self-assessment is important. Because if you're in corporate America and you're not happy, you got to make an assessment as to what are the things that are going to be happy, uh, help you to be happy. Uh, so that, that, that would be a first step. And the second step that goes along with that is to really evaluate your networks, your mentors. Um, you know, your 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 sponsors, the people who are in your life, who are giving you advice uh, and support career wise, uh, no matter what your path is going forward, whether you pivot uh, out of corporate America, whether you stay within it, you're going to need to have robust networks and uh, ma fantastic mentors and sponsors who are, are, are helping you guide your way. So those are things you've got to do um, if you're in that in that 40th, 40th category uh, in the middle of your of your career. What what do you also um, what do you also say? Okay, so what do you say to that person who is? You know, matter of fact, I'm just gonna give you a real life example. Um, no, I'm gonna get you get your perspective first, then I'm gonna give you my example. Mm -hmm. To that person, where the company has come to them and they've said basically said it's time for you to go. You you've gone as high as, as high as you can go. Oh, let me start on that one there, <laughs> because if they told you that, um, you know, and, and it, it's sort of the, the handwriting's on the wall and it's, it's time to go, um, you know, there's some packages you're going to get, right? You, you need to think about what you're going to do with that with that money, uh, because that sometimes the road ends in, in, on that path, but you got other paths and options. Um, some of them are going to be in the entrepreneurship realm. Sometimes you are able to now take that knowledge that you've developed over time, create your own company, go back and consult at the company where you were and 12 others. Why not? Uh, for some folks, this is a great time to change, uh, change companies. Uh, changing companies is not as hard as it used to be, especially when there are companies who are trying to diversify and they're looking for people who have your, your gifts and talents. Be willing to, to make a move. Now, some, for some of us, that means uh, a geographical move, too, which is sometimes a challenge because you get all these things have happening and going on. But how do you evaluate those other opportunities? So, you know, th this is one of those times. You, you said it earlier where the, these are, are, are possibilities. And, and please, again, do not discount the pivot uh, into areas that will bring you joy 
um, and will bring you uh, some some relief from some of the stress where you mm -hmm. have some 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 more meaning. And that may be uh, in the nonprofit, um, in social sector. Uh, it, it may be in education. Uh, it may be in entrepreneurship in your own your own your own business. Right. That, that's invaluable. You can't you can't you can't can't live without that kind of stuff. Yep. Randall. Uh, you know, I, I would say what we talked about earlier, which is you should seriously consider the path of entrepreneurship. The 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 the, the, the unfortunate reality is the longer you've been in corporate, it sucks the entrepreneurial life out of you. And you know, you get comfortable, you're risk averse, you're accustomed to structure and process and ambiguity scare you, scare the scare the living daylights out of you. But I I, I say entrepreneurship or rather the entrepreneur's mindset is the defining mindset of the 21st century if you have not yet cultivated the ability to figure out how to create and define your own path you have to begin to develop that muscle because you cannot be dependent on somebody else to offer you a job and a paycheck uh, increasingly Opportunity is finding itself in lots of different pockets, freelance work, part-time work, consulting work, and business ownership. And I would also say, also consider, if at the end of the day, entrepreneurship is not your path, I understand that, then consider investing in Black-owned businesses that you're still playing in the entrepreneurial realm without being the entrepreneur. That would be my advice. So uh, about three years ago, Three years ago, yeah, it was nineteen. It was nineteen. Um, I uh, I spoke at a conference and I was um, at a meeting with this sister, significant position in a major um, top tier Fortune five hundred company, and um, she was frustrated. She was despondent. She was depressed because uh, they pretty much were like, "That's it for you." And and she was just and she was she didn't know what to do. So we're sitting there, we're having lunch, and I'm asking her, "Hey, do, do, do you know these sisters or these?" And she didn't know. Do, do you know these African Americans? I mentioned John Rogers and some others. She didn't know. I said, "I'm gonna introduce you to these people." And and she was so locked into you know her career. She really wasn't out networking and and going outside of that that major company circle. And um, when it came time for her to leave, I mean, again, she was depressed. She was she was freaking out. Oh my God, you know what's going to happen? You know, my kids in college, did an Ivy League? I'm going to pay for this. And and she, I mean, she was just losing it. And so we're sitting there uh, in about 40 minutes into the lunch. I'm like, okay, so and so says to, to give him a call. She says, so what do you mean? I said, oh, I I, I told you I was texting the person she went right now i said what, what the hell you think i was waiting on <laughs> and so i hit like That's four right. or five people in the moment now mind you i i wouldn't get anything out of this i was like here's the whole deal and so i had a couple more conversations with her so then one day i i get a phone call and or no i actually saw something uh, an announcement on linkedin and i called the cusser out i said oh oh i couldn't get a phone call here's what happened she went to a company in a whole different sector, one she would have never, ever thought about, became the, the, the CMO 
reporting directly to the president, CEO, I'm sorry, making double what she was making at her previous company. Yeah. What I explained to her was you were you were selling yourself short. She kept thinking I should only rise within this company. Mm-hmm. I said, when you got to understand, boo, it's a whole bunch of companies out there. Mm-hmm. Your time in a company may end, but it doesn't mean that you've ended. And so she was so locked into them telling her that mm-hmm. she wasn't worthy, if you will, that mm-hmm. she was so depressed and despondent, she did not even realize I could take my skill set and go elsewhere. That's right. And, right. And, and I counter that a lot with a lot of black folks in high places is that they think this is the only place I can grow, thrive. I'm going to come here. I'm going to retire. No, you may actually have to leave to get what you desire. Mm -hmm. And that to me, I think is a huge mistake. A lot of people make, they don't think beyond that company and realize the goal that I want to have, it may not be here. Yeah. And, and and I hope your listeners are connecting these dots that, again, when we say that you think like an entrepreneur without being an entrepreneur is because entrepreneurs recognize that they have value and can create value. You can be entre- have an entrepreneurial mindset and be a corporate executive, but it means you see yourself as your own private business. That's the words of Earl Graves from How to Succeed in Business Being White. When you see your career as its own private business, now you're thinking entrepreneurially and you're you're not an employee, you are an entrepreneur who has brought value to an organization and I don't, I'm not reliant on you to bring that value to somebody else. And if you don't see the value, I will take my value like LeBron James took his talents to Miami. I'll take it someplace else. There you go. There you go. And that's exactly what I I told her. And then she was totally blown away. I said, boo, if you don't believe in yourself, ain't nobody will. The book, Black Faces in High Places, 10 Strategic Actions for Black Professionals to Reach the Top and Stay There. Uh, Randall, Jeffrey, brothers, I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. And like you keep telling people, you just listen to Alphas, it'll all be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Jess, thanks a lot. (laughs) Thank you, brother. All right, take care. All right, folks, that is it for us on today's show. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. I also hope you you enjoy your Memorial Day weekend, uh, your three-day weekend. Uh, Please remember those uh, who sacrifice for this country, especially our black soldiers who did it in the face of Jim Crow and racism. As always, we always end our show on Fridays acknowledging those who contribute to our Bring the Funk fan club. Uh, but before I do that, don't forget, download the Black Star Network app. It's important for you to do so on all your devices, Android phone, Apple phone, Android TV, Apple TV, uh, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Samsung TV, as well as Xbox. And please, if you want to join our Bring the Funk fan club, remember all dollars that you give goes to support this show, uh, allows us to be able to travel, pay staff, to cover the news that you think is important. And so do so. Your check-in money orders can go to P.O. Box 
57196. That's right, 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037-0196. Cash app is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is Roland at RolandSMartin.com. Roland at RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. That's it for us, folks. Be sure to have a great weekend, and I'll see you on Tuesday. Until then.